0: hello and welcome this is a podcast explaining ukraine by ukraineworld.org a website in english about ukraine my name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. i'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and analytics director at internews ukraine today we will talk about crimea not only about crimea's occupation by russia in 2014 but also about a longer history, a history of Stalin's brutal deportation of Crimean Tatars in 1944, a history of Russian colonialism, of erasing the memory and displacement of people, a history of Ukrainian-Crimean-Tatar relations, and a history of cultural solidarity and intercultural memory. My guest is Rory Finan, Director of Ukrainian Studies Program at the University of Cambridge. My guest today is Rory Finin, who is associate professor at the University of Cambridge and director of Ukrainian Studies program at the University of Cambridge. He is preparing a book, which is called Blood of Others, Stalin's Crimean Atrocity and the Poetics of Solidarity, which is set to be published next year at the University of Toronto Press. Rory, hello. Thanks so much for being with me today.
1: Hi, Volodymyr. Lovely to be with you.
0: So congratulations with your upcoming book. I had a a privilege to look through it. And I must say that this is a fantastic book going, navigating through different cultures, through Ukrainian culture, Crimean Tatar culture, Turkish culture, Russian culture. So there are many languages in this, many, many cultural dimensions. But of course, you're talking about not only culture and literature, but about politics, and your central point is the deportation of the Crimean Tatars in 1944, the Stalin's atrocity, one of these elements of the uh, Stalin's deportation and genocide politics. Uh, But you're also trying to look at Crimea as a place of solidarity, as a place of cultural solidarity between uh, different ethnicities, between different ethnic groups, uh, between Russian speakers, Crimean Tatar speakers, Ukrainian speakers, etc., uh, is that the point of your book? Uh, what, what were the key motivation for you to start writing it?
1: Well, this is a project that I wasn't looking for but I think looked for me in a sense because it came out of experiences in different libraries in Ukraine, in Turkey, when I'd be looking for certain texts, certain passages, but then I'd always bump into something else and Those things were these passages in Ukrainian language literature, Russian language literature, Turkish language literature, expressions of mutual identification or solidarity with the Crimean Tatars, particularly given their dispossession in 1944 by Stalin, that brutal deportation that you mentioned at the outset. So I was always fascinated as someone who studies literature and culture with the question what are these literary texts doing? Uh, What are they trying to do out in the real world? Why not simply, instead of writing a poem or a short story with implicit hidden references to this event, why not write an open letter or a petition, a manifesto? And this, of course, happens later in Soviet uh, samizdat samvidav culture. But first, it's literary texts that are doing this. So I was really fascinated with that question. And then, as you say, the question of solidarity across these different linguistic, cultural, religious groups. I think the book is really about that above all, because that's what really fascinates me. These are works of literature and culture that take risks where people who don't have a connection with the Crimean Tatars actually live far from them, may not have really even met some of them, but nonetheless, take on board a risk of circulating texts that express this connection with them at the same time uh, i did not want to shy away from the history of contestation and struggle and antagonism between these groups as well so it's a book that tries to take on this balance but for me i'm very troubled by what i often call krimnesia of forgetting of what is going on in contemporary crimea particularly after 2014 the Russian annexation of Ukraine's autonomous republic of Crimea.
0: So uh, let's come back to this initial initial event, this tragic event, uh, which is uh, one of the cornerstone of of the Crimean Tatar memory uh, today. In in your book, for example, you describe the famous song by Jamala on uh, you, on um, on the European Song Contest. Uh, but this 1944 the deportation just in a few days of the whole nation, uh, how it helps us to understand what happened previously before this deportation and what happened next? How, for example, it helps us to
1: understand probably the events of 2014. I read the deportation in 1944 as Stalin's attempt to finally exercise what I call anxieties of possession of the Crimean Peninsula that really begin in the 18th century. We often go back to the 18th century and and reflect upon the demise of the Crimean Tatar Khanate and its annexation to the Russian Empire as a peaceful annexation, a, a moment of capitulation from the Crimean Tatar Merzer class, for instance. But really it came at the back end of something like five or six invasions of the Crimean Tatar Khanate from the Russian Empire. So this... Absorption of Crimean Tatar Crimea into the Russian Empire was remarkable for the fact that Catherine fashioned her conquest of the peninsula as very much a conquest of Crimean Tatar territory. So when she arrives there in 1787, she fashions her entire experience through the prism of Crimean Tatar culture. She makes sure, and Petyomkin helps her, she makes sure that. Uh, there are battalions and troops, Crimean Tatar troops, greeting her in Baksha Sarai. Petyomkin lights the Khan Sarai, the palace of the Crimean Tatar khans, in this very Oriental fashion. So the paradox here is that for the Russian Empire to negate and destroy effectively Crimean Tatar culture, they first had to establish that it was there at the start, and so this creates an anxiety possession for the imperial metropole. Because that initial bond that's established between the place of Crimea and the inheritance of the Crimean Tatars, particularly in the realm of culture, as well as politics, it never really goes away. So in the 19th century, we see the Crimean Tatars fleeing uh, their homeland due to oppressions at the hands of Russian imperial authorities. They leave what they call the Yeshil Alda, the Green Island of Crimea, for the Ak Toprak of the Ottoman Empire. This displacement is ongoing, particularly after the Crimean War, when it gets worse, when the Crimean Tatars are blamed and scapegoated for not the first time uh, as traitors to the imperial center. So really, by the time 1944 comes around, we see Stalin, of course, thinking ahead to potential military conflict with Turkey over control of the, the straits and therefore expelling all these indigenous peoples from the periphery uh, of the the Soviet Union, from Crimea in particular, the Crimean Tatars are are perhaps foremost among the deported peoples at this time. We see the same thing happen to the Chechen people. I think that anxiety uh, of possession never really goes away. It gets worse, in fact. It gets exacerbated by this deportation event. It really secures a kind of territorial nationalism amongst Crimean Tatar activists where the homeland, the Vatan, the Crimean Vatan, becomes cherished, mourned, constantly remembered. And at the same time, in the Soviet Union, as I point out in the book, it becomes emblematic of a rot at the center of Soviet society that a lot of Ukrainian and Russian dissidents, what we often call in the West dissidents, but that word is obviously very contested, Uh, among dissident figures in the Soviet Union at this time. So this, again, this attempt to eviscerate and destroy the Crimean Tatar people, and not only that, Volodymyr, also to destroy the idea that they existed in the first place. This is what I call discursive cleansing. So references to their uh, unique toponyms, their town names, their village names, their own history, their ruins, their cemeteries. These are destroyed. The discursive traces of the Crimean Tatars are removed, once again testifying to this anxiety possession, uh, a violent epistemic um, attempt to erase an entire people from a very key territory in the Soviet imagination, as you know. And then on top of it, we have this project of of what's called settler colonialism. And this is something I, I really regret we never really focused on in the context of the study of Crimea, particularly from 1991 to 2014. That is, settler colonialism is a project by which the empire displaces and replaces, let's say, the native population, where to get in the way, all the native has to do is stay at home. So in the case of Crimea and the Crimean Tatars after 1944, we have thousands, tens of thousands of citizens of Soviet Russia, Soviet Ukraine coming and taking Crimean Tatar homes, being given Crimean Tatar homes by the state. Um, This complete displacement and then replacement of the Crimean Tatar population has left a deep scar that we've never really acknowledged. We tended to read Soviet uh, and post-Soviet Crimean politics as a contestation between different ethnic groups. Crimean Tatars form central among these, these groups, but we never really took on board this history of colonization in a serious sense. We never talked about issues of truth and reconciliation uh, commissions, uh, electoral quotas, uh, reparations. None of these things really entered our discourse in any meaningful way. And they were needed to call attention to this deep colonial history, which has really affected everyone. uh, And really, I think, dispersed these anxieties of possession such that the 2014 Crimean annexation had to be accompanied with all these chauvinistic, assertions. Crimea is ours. You know, if you really belong in a place, you don't need to attest to it all the time. But I think this type of meme testifies to a deep anxiety over possession of the Crimean Peninsula that's not going to go away. And we need to keep our focus on Crimea in this regional context, um, particularly given everything that's going on right now.
0: so it's very interesting that you talk about this russian colonialism uh, i would say that probably maybe you will agree with me or not it is not well described in the in the in the western world so all this russian orientalism russian colonialism russian cultural imperialism these are things that uh, different nations experienced living under the russian empire than under soviet union and when you're describing this displacement or replacement, it's it's of course led to the situation of 2014 when when there are groups in Crimea, the, the majority of people or not the majority of people who are greeting the Russian annexation because because basically of ethnic cleansing, of deportations, of replacement of you of population, which happened during Soviet time and which continues after the occupation, after the annexation of Crimea but uh, while you're talking about 18th century coming very deep in history I, I always try to think like how in intersected these events were because if we take the Catherine rule 70s and 80s of the 18th century we see that in a matter of years we see the crackdown of, of key statehoods that were uh, the historical neighbors of of moscovy or, or afterwards russian empire what i mean is uh, the first the first partitions of poland what i mean then the uh, kuchuk-kainadzik's peace which uh, led afterwards to the first annexation of crimean uh, in in the early 80s and what i mean afterwards is the destruction of the progen host like right the the key the key stronghold of Ukrainian, or the rest rem- remnants of Ukrainian state autonomy. So, we rather should think about it in a, in a, also in a more complex way, and um, also see remarkable parallels between Ukrainian history and Crimean Tatar history. And it's interesting that, for example, while in the nineteenth early nineteenth century, lots of Ukrainian romantics were like Slavophiles who were considering that well turks and muslims and turks and crimean tatars are their major enemies how it has been changing gradually to the end of the 19th century to the early 20th century and maybe because of this understanding of the of the colonialism russian colonialism uh, we see this remarkable you know uh, friendship right now be- between ukrainian identity and crimean tatar identity so you're trying to trace this Relations, Ukrainian, Crimean Tatar relations, from, from through different poets and writers, from uh, Boris Chichibabin, Russian-speaking Kharkiv poet, uh, to Lesya Ukrainka, Ukrainian-speaking, our classic of Ukrainian literature, to to filmmakers like Sensof or like Oles Sanin. So, these uh, these solidarity is very important to you. Why?
1: Well, right now it to me, speaks to a remarkable relationship in which a small Sunni Muslim people are actively inflecting and shaping a civic conception of Ukrainian nationalism that is, of course, the predominant mode of, of belonging in Ukraine today. I think that has a lot of implications for us, not only in the sphere of Ukrainian studies, but certainly in the study of, of uh, uh, global Islam itself. I think we've been missing a lot of the important messages behind this relationship. And I, I of course, don't want to reduce Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars here to monoliths. We're talking about very diverse peoples. But we can see a mainstream Crimean Tatar Ukrainian solidarity in civil society. And you're absolutely right to point to this, these stories, these discourses of mutual antagonism, because they're very powerful. That is in Ukrainian cultural discourse, as you mentioned, particularly in the 16th, 17th centuries, you have stories of Crimean Tatar slave raids on Ukrainian homes. In Crimean Tatar discourse, you have stories of Ukrainians actively participating in the dispossession of the Crimean Tatars in the 19th, 20th centuries. What really fascinates me is this defiance of gravity, as it were, how writers and literary figures decide to focus on this past of alliance and cooperation, to discard these narratives of mutual antagonism and to choose something new. And in choosing something new, the discussion becomes, what does it mean to be at home in Ukraine? What kind of home is Ukraine? Right now we see in Ukrainian writing about Crimean, Crimean Tatars, and conversely Crimean Tatar language writing about Ukraine, we have these remarkable meditations on what it means to be at home at a time of chaos and threat what it means to be at home when your home is taken from you or when your home is invaded and this mutual reflection is allowing Crimean tatars and ukrainians to consider what it means to be at home and how to fashion ukraine as a homeland of homelands in the plural that's extremely fascinating to me and i think the major transition in this cultural discussion occurs with people like lesia ukrainka or Ahat Angel Krimsky or Mikhailo Kotsubinsky at the turn of the 20th century. These are writers, I'm speaking here specifically about Ukrainka and Kotsubinsky, who not only express a kind of empathy with the Crimean Tatars, but begin to see their own colonial exploitation, that is, the colonial exploitation of the Ukrainians through the experiences of the Crimean Tatars. So Lesi Ukrainka in her poetry reflects upon the lost political sovereignty of the Crimean Tatars and speaks of it in this lyrical sense as something lost that she can identify with. But in her prose, she goes even deeper. There's a story called At the Seaside, Nadmorem. It's a remarkable work in which her Ukrainian heroine, who's begrudgingly spending time with a Russian debutante in Crimea, where she's vacationing, she sees a Crimean Tatar boy turn a certain glance at the two women for the Russian debutante's uh, insult. So the Russian debutante calls this young Crimean Tatar boy a Muzhlam adult. And in casting this gaze, this response to the insult, the Crimean Tatar boy uh, in Ukrainka's representation um, looks darkly at this colonial relationship and her Ukrainian heroine identifies with the gaze itself and begins to think through her own relationship in a new way. This is a kind of metaphor for a project by which Ukrainians begin to read their own colonial relationship with the center through the experiences of the Crimean Tatars. And this becomes something consistently done throughout the 20th century. Kotsubinsky is another good example. Uh, One might read one of his stories called uh, Below the Minarets as a Uh, an analogy, an allegory, really, for the struggle between uh, populism in Ukraine and modernism in Ukraine. But then we see, particularly after 1944, this discourse of relationship, this discourse of alliance and mutual reflection taken in new ways in Samvidav, so-called dissident Ukrainian writing, where the relationship is still maintained, but it has now this Rather shocking and brutal backdrop of the dis- deportation itself of 1944. So that's carried through. Now, at the same time, there were certainly Soviet writers who held to the uh, traditional uh, narrative that the Crimean Tatars during the Second World War committed mass treason, which is, of course, completely false. About 10% of Crimean Tatars Uh, are thought to have collaborated with Nazi occupiers, but most in large numbers fought on the side of the Red Army. And of course, the victims of the deportation were mostly men, children, excuse me, women, children, and the elderly, because many of the men were fighting off on the front. So the brutality of this event begins to color a lot of the reflections from these Ukrainian writers and poets in the Soviet period. And now we see it doubled in effect. We see another layer, another wave in which the annexation of 2014 becomes another prism through which Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars are looking at their own experience. And I should say that this is not literature about uh, mutual suffering. It's it's not lacrimose. It's not um, seeking to assume the mantle of the, the primary victim, for instance. It's really, again, this meditation on what it means to be displaced both culturally and politically, and even physically, but really what it means to be displaced when others are as well, and how to relate to them. That is, I think, in our current political climate, a really important dialogue and discussion that we need to to focus on.
0: It's very interesting that you are tracing back this Ukrainian Crimean Tatar dialogue to the early twentieth century because sometimes there is an impression that suddenly Crimean Tatars and Ukrainians discovered themselves after the after the uh, illegal occupation of two thousand fourteen. Basically you, you show brilliantly that the story, the history goes very deep. We can we can go even deeper and, and think about, you know, uh, how Cossacks, Ukrainian Cossacks and Crimean Tatars were not only fighting but uh, being in military alliances, how in iconography of Crimean Tatar hunts and Ukrainian Cossack hetmans we see many many uh, similar traits in the way how they look like, how they are uh, dressed, etc. We can also trace back to the uh, to the idea that uh, the Cossack itself is a Turkic word and uh, there is so many interactions between these these cultures. But uh, I'm also thinking how, for example, you mentioned Lesya Ukrainka and Ahatangel Krimsky. It is interesting to look in a triangle uh, with Mykhailo Drahomanov, who was the uncle of Lesya Ukrainka, and Ahatangel Krimsky, who was considering himself as a continuator of Drahomanov's work as a they are very much comparable in, in the in the intellectual scale. But while Drahomanov, although he was a, a kind of a civic uh, uh, very focused on the civic idea of politics and, and driving away from this old romantic Slavophile politics, he still considered Turkic world and Crimean Tatar world as a kind of a key Key threat historically for Ukrainians, and therefore he spent so much time and effort to analyze the the folk songs about uh, these Crimean Tatar uh, attacks it's all the rest. But we see how it it changes in the next generation. And I think why it it has been changing in the early twentieth century. It was precisely when when people like Lysa Ukrainka or Hatan Gilkrimsky, who had himself had the Crimean Tatar. Um, um, Family coming from the Crimean Tatar family, how they were starting thinking rather in these anti-colonial terms and not really identifying themselves with, with the uh, Russian imperial project. But let's talk a little bit about this Russian colonialism. You also focus on it very much. You focus on a recent uh, collection of literary works by Russian writers called, I think, Nashkrim, which was supposed to oppose maybe this military annexation, but generally had no mention of Crimean Tatar. So it was, uh, according to you, only the impressions of the Russian writers about how beautiful Crimean nature is. So it, this is kind of a, what you call detatarization uh, or a dialectic of imperial possession. Uh, we can also trace it to some Russian classics like Pushkin and his famous Bakhchisaraisky uh, Fountain. So, can you elaborate on this a little bit more? Can we really apply this language that developed in 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 the Western scholarships about colonialism, the language of Edward Said, whom you quote? Can we apply this to the approach of the Russian Empire to the to the Crimean Tatars?
1: Absolutely, I think. The Russian colonization of places like Crimea, the Caucasus, among others, actually fits very well on this Saidian uh, Western framework, this framework of of scholars who focus on um, imperial expansion, Orientalism. I think the story of Russian colonialism has been obscured because of the land empire element. That is... Most of the time in the Western imagination, when we're thinking about a colony, we're thinking about a place that's separated from the imperial center by an ocean or a sea. The story of Russian colonial and imperial expansion has been, unfortunately, inflected a great deal by Western historiographers and historians who have once again, I think, reduced the story of expansion to these series of annexations. So earlier in uh Your comments, Volodymyr, you mentioned the destruction of the Zaporozhian siege, that military raising of this important strategic uh, stronghold. The conquest was military. It was then followed by political annexation and absorption. And often in Western historical treatments of the Russian Empire, that first step is completely effaced from the equation. And we focus instead on these moments of annexation where the empire seems to just be expanding its borders because uh, native populations along the periphery wanted to be so. And of course that's completely inaccurate. So one part of this is of course acknowledging that military conquest preceded these moments and to focus on those moments of military conquest. The other thing is of course to contest what is now I think considered uh, internal colonialism or at least the the frame of internal colonialism which is another way of looking Uh, at the Russian Empire and uh, its expansion. Um, This notion grows over the course of the 19th century. It culminates in the work of Vasily Kluchevsky, for instance, who remarks that the history of Russia is the history of a country colonizing itself. But the problem here is, of course, who gets to determine the self here? Who gets to determine what is inside and what is outside? And if the Russian Empire is colonizing everyone in its borders, then it's really colonizing no one it's reducing colonization effectively to any practice of state discipline of of subjects. So we have a lot of these fascinating frames in the West in which we're trying to establish a way of understanding the Russian empire and Russian colonialism, but because of the land empire element, uh, because of this provocative frame of internal colonization, we're we're missing a lot of these projects of political and cultural colonization. I think in, in terms of, if we speak in terms of projects of colonialism, then things become much more clear for us. We're able to establish, once again, a project of settler colonialism in Crimea. That project of settler colonialism, as we've discussed before, displaced and replaced the native population. That same process of uh, settler colonialism did not occur in the same way in Ukrainian lands, although it did at certain moments, of course, when, for instance, uh, Ukrainian uh, farmers are invited to go to the Zelene Klin, in the Russian Far East, and then they were replaced um, by uh, Russian settlers in the late 19th century. These types of projects have been occurring, I think, if we think of them um, in this individual sense, if we focus specifically on projects, we can speak more constructively. Interestingly, you mentioned earlier this project of, of Nashkrim, this volume of mostly Russian language poetry about Crimea. What's this... Fascinating here is this elevation of Crimea as a place. You mentioned the the nature and the focus on the natural vibrancy of the Crimean Peninsula. It is often uh, a place that's evacuated uh, of any Tatar, Crimean Tatar personality, as I call it in the book. But if we go back in time and look at works like Pushkin's Bakchisaraisky Fontan," The Fountain of Bakchisarai that you mentioned, you can see the poem first establishing a connection between Crimean Tatar identity and Crimean place. But the trick is in Russian imperial literature to, again, establish the relationship, destroy the relationship, and then later elevate something new in its place. And what happened in Russian literature is that this something new is the the paradise of Crimea. That became the main uh, focus, the main chorus in Russian literature. In Turkish literature, interestingly, it works the other way. That is, in a lot of Turkish literature, the focus on Crimea becomes a connection between the territory of Crimea and the identity of the Crimean Tatars, who are seen as a a Turkic people, a Turkic ally. That bond is broken, and instead, identity is elevated instead. So the Crimean Tatars become a vessel for a broader Turkic identity with pretensions not only into the Black Sea, but into Central Asia. So this is a dynamic I think we can trace in a lot of imperial literatures, but we first have to establish the, the nature of the dialectic, how it first establishes a bond between territory and the culture of the native, destroys it, and then puts something new in its stead. So today we're seeing, once again, in Russian literature, this conventional treatment, not of Crimea as a place with an identity that goes beyond the Soviet frame, but rather something that is embracing and celebrating the natural world the flora and fauna of crimea that becomes the main um, the main thing crimea becomes known for and uh, writers like uh, andrei kurkov call this a kind of um, souvenir literature uh, a way of portraying an entire territory with a deep multi-ethnic cultural heritage as a, a kind of zoo that we go to visit
0: yes indeed and um we are unfortunately experiencing this erasing of, of history and what you call amnesia or crimnesia right in, um, in as also as a political gesture as a political uh, political move let's turn, l- let's talk about the crimean tatar culture itself because you quote so many crimean tatar writers poets maybe there are some 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 of your favorite maybe you, that is something you you wanted to share with the English-speaking audience who is not necessarily reading in Crimean Tatars. And, of course, uh, Ukrainians are also not necessarily reading in Crimean Tatar language. What do you think are really remarkable?
1: That's such a great question. And first, I have to say, you mentioned Ukrainians uh, reading Crimean Tatar. There have been a, a lot of really remarkable projects to um, promote Crimean-Tatar language learning among uh, the Ukrainian population. One of the projects is run out of the Crimean house in Kiev, Krimsky Dim, and they have a terrific contest actually every year now, an annual competition um, under the title Krimsky Injir, Crimean Fig, which promotes new writing in the Ukrainian language and Crimean-Tatar language about Crimea, the experiences of Crimea as well as translations between the languages. So we're beginning to see uh, much more cultural interaction, meaningful translations, much more language learning. I don't want to oversell, of course, how many Ukrainians are learning Crimean Tatars, but the very fact that the language is making inroads is really quite astonishing and an encouraging thing to see. As far as Crimean Tatar literature, I, I spent years trying to read a lot uh, of this um cultural inheritance, I found myself through the Russian, Ukrainian, and Turkish frames discussing it often, but then realizing I didn't have much to say about the the canon uh, of Crimean Tatar works themselves. So that has been a remarkable journey uh, over the past number of years. And I have to say, there are so many wonderful choices. For me, I think in poetry, I gravitate mostly to where I find myself in great admiration for a man named Hassan Tchirgeyev. He was uh, a Simferopol-based teacher who for instance, in 1909 wrote a satirical work called Listen to What the Dead Man Says. Um, he didn't publish it with his, his name. He did publish it at his, at his own expense. And in the satirical work, he plays with the genre of the grotesque. And we all remember the genre of the grotesque as one that features a reality that is estranged by zombies, monsters, uncanny people. What Chergiev does in this poem is he flips the script. And instead we have a man who's brought from the dead. So the undead who is estranged by the reality of crimea in 1909 that is he's uh, brought back from the dead he walks around uh, crimea he's horrified by what he sees he's horrified by the loss of crimea tatar culture uh, speaking in a vein actually that shevchenko uh, in his works, particularly of 1843 1845 and 1846 the so-called treilita period a similar kind of discourse of shock at what's happened to one's homeland after uh, an absence and so this figure in Turgenev's poem buries himself back in the grave. It's a remarkable work of satire. So much of his poetry is attuned to this type of political reflection. He's very creative. And then I suppose in prose, it has to be the en parlak yildiz, the brightest star of Crimean Tatar uh, prose, uh, Shamil Aliyadin, who actually is widely available now in, in Ukrainian translation. So I can encourage our, our Ukrainian uh, colleagues and friends to to, to, to see, search out his works in, in the Ukrainian language. He had a remarkable biography. Uh, as a young soldier in the Red Army, for instance, he was stationed in konstantiniv And it's around this time that he begins reading a great deal of Ukrainian literature. So he is, a, as a literary figure, is someone really well-versed in Ukrainian culture and is highly intertextual with it uh, in the 1930s, he writes a poem in the Ukrainian Central language called A Buyuk Ukraina, O Great Ukraine, in which he catalogs the victimization uh, of the Ukrainians in, in, in history, but focuses instead not so much on the victimization in, in the historical context, but on this relationship of identification. So he ends the poem relating to the U- Ukrainians in this respect. And upon the end of his life, He started a a book project called Tugaibe, about one of the great Tatar military figures who worked very closely with Bogdan Khmelnytsky, the Ukrainian Cossack Hetman, who in 1648 rises up against Polish power and secures an autonomous Cossack polity, as we know. And in that story, remarkably... Aliuddin fashions Khmelnytsky as a Crimean Tatar speaker, which, according to historical sources, was not inaccurate. That is, uh, Khmelnytsky could speak some Crimean Tatar. He also has the Crimean Tatar Khan speaking Ukrainian as well at times. So these two figures, Khmelnytsky and the Khan and Tugaybe, these three figures rather, um, are attuned to each other's cultures, using each other's languages. And at one point, the Khan has Khmelnytsky um, swear that his intentions are pure by testing to Allah in the Ukrainian language while kissing the Quran three times. Uh, a really remarkable novel. It wasn't finished, but is, um, is released in incomplete form. But I think Aliuddin in prose is someone who um, offers the reader a great deal of, of uh, historical fiction, uh, of poetry. And Shir-Gaev, um really offers us more of satire more more play in lyrical works and then there are wonderful poets like Seriye kokche in Crimea today who is a wonderful uh, Crimean Tatar poet and translator from Ukrainian in fact and has translated some of the works of Serhiy Zhadan
0: these are indeed remarkable stories and uh... Uh, I just wonder how 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 rich it is, how rich this this culture is, and uh, how interesting the journey to this culture is, especially if you if you are taking this approach of of looking to at different intersections, interconnections, and we can go deeper and, for example, fantasize about also the the way how in in the western eyes the ukrainian lands and the crimean tatar lands were so often identified and when for example this the famous legend of mazeppa who is who appears the young mazeppa who appears in voltaire and then comes to byron etc closer to the end of the 19th century in the european literature is remarkably identified with Crimean Tatar lands and when Mazepa is presented as a Crimean Han rather than Ukrainian Hetman. And um, this also shows how how interesting this interconnections is. And uh, in many ways, as we talked with you, how Ukrainian story and Crimean Tatar story are are interconnected, both in, in their common position in this Eurasian borderlands, in this relation to the steppe, for example, and in this uh, situation when you basically need to survive between different different military powers, different imperial powers and uh, including survive the politics of uh, of erasing, displacement, uh, genocide etc. Thanks so much Rory, this is fantastic uh, talk and um, again congratulations with your very interesting book. Uh, let me remind that we talked with Rory Finan from Cambridge University and his book Blood of Others, Stalin's Crimean Atrocity and the Poetics of Solidarity. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Vladimir. It's wonderful to be with you.
0: This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Molenko, I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, follow ukraineworld.org on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to our website at ukraineworld.org and stay with us.